Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey guys, welcome to Punching Out. I am Lou, joined today by Noah. Hi y'all. And Kate. Hey. So today we are talking about the Supreme Court case that was heard this week that has been in a lot of news sources and social media, uh, specifically Dobbs v. Jackson. If you are a human that exists in time and space, uh, congratulations and welcome to the show. Uh, the point is, this is a, a case that's going to impact a lot of things and a lot of, a lot of people, um, specifically anybody who is concerned about reproductive access. Anybody want to jump in and help describe the case? Right. Well, so Dobbs v. Jackson is, 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 you know, when you boil it down to its essentials, it's an, it's, um, an assault on the right to, Privacy that was established in Roe v. Wade and then further expanded on in Planned Parenthood v. Casey by the United States Supreme Court. Um, so Mississippi is making the argument in this case uh, primarily that uh, the liberty interest here is something that should be regulated. We're going to say regulated by the state, right? So this is this turns into like a state's rights issue, but they also have an alternative argument. Um, which is that fine if you agree that um, the the standards that we've just that we've established in Roe v. Wade and Casey can stand, um, we're going to get rid of the viability standard. So, and I'm jumping into like the details of this case pretty quickly, and I apologize for that. But I think you know these are it's just it's really just these two things, right? It's either Dobbs is either we overturn Roe entirely, or if we don't, we change the standard by which uh, the, the legal limit um, that an abortion can be up to which an abortion can be sought is. So it would no longer be viability. It would be, in this case, 15 weeks. So this matters. I mean, there's been a lot of states uh, around the country in this past year who have passed re- abortion restrictions. Um, this is the first one to make it to the Supreme Court, if I recall correctly. Um, and Mississippi's law restricts any abortion past 15 weeks, um, which was not the original standard. I believe the standard established of viability is about 24 weeks, uh, if I remember that correctly, right? Uh, it's either, tw- it's, I think it might be 23 or 20. 23. I know, or tw- it's, it is between, I know it's between 22 and 24. There you go. So it's, it's not 15. It's not 15. past 15. Um, Texas, a uh, very, Infamously, I'd say uh, this year also passed a uh, fetal heartbeat abortion ban, um, which in essence bans any abortion past six weeks approximately when a heartbeat can be detected on an ultrasound. So that's almost a complete abortion ban. So this is something that is um, very um, current as far as, as legislation that could be impacted. Um, in, in various states. Uh, 
and this impacts a lot of people. And there, there are a lot of people in the U.S. who, who either could have a baby or would want to have a baby at some point. And this could affect their ability to access health care. And I, I want to drill down a little bit on which states that is. Because currently there are, so even before Roe was decided, there were abortion bans in Alabama, Arizona, Michigan, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. And those are basically blocked by Roe, but they could be enforced if Roe is overturned. There are, uh, let's see, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, as we know, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah all have bans that would go into effect if Roe is overturned. And there, there are four states with heartbeat laws, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, and South Carolina. So that's a lot of states that all have some version of uh, essentially, and I'm going to try to stay away from talking as much as possible during this episode, because this really isn't my uh, my moment to soapbox. But I, I, I do have to wonder, <clears throat> why is it cool for a state to explicitly legislate against the federal judiciary like if the supreme court is supposed to be the final determinant of whether something is constitutional or not and we're supposed to respect president why is it okay for a state to just be like uh that's cool that you decided that we're gonna make a law that's completely against that and you know bring it up to you and you get to decide whether you still like that or not oh man that that's probably getting to the legal weeds (laughs) well sure legal weeds but also just like um you know, thinking about just how far down the road to crazy town we've gone in the country. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so th- the point is, this case is is a big one. It's it's huge. This is probably why, even if you've you're not on social media and you don't watch the news, you you've probably at least heard that something is happening. Because um, this is this is massive. Uh, before we get too far too much farther into the episode, I just want to do a quick clarification on the language that we're going to be using in this. Um, We here at Punching Out completely understand and acknowledge that anyone with a uterus, I feel that's fair to say, uh, anyone could become pregnant and this would be impacted. If you identify as a man or a woman, this could impact you in either case. For the most part in this episode, we're going to be talking about women and women's issues, not because we think that only women can get pregnant or whatever, uh, but because the gender roles that are being enforced by policies like an abortion ban or anything like that are designed to, uh, to be enforced on women and the role that women play within society. So for that reason, we're prop, we're just going to simplify language and, and focus in our language on that. Um, but we do acknowledge that other people can get pregnant and that this could impact them as well. Um, so moving on, what were we talking about? We're talking about the case. Yeah, we're talking about the case. Um, so it was argued on the 1st of December, so very recently. Um, I did watch the argument. I don't know if either uh, you, Lou, or you, Noah, had a chance to watch it. I thought it was pretty interesting. And I, get, I think there's a lot of insight that can be drawn from it, just in terms of where the justices are. Um, and we'll probably get a decision next summer. So we get to all just sit in the question of this for half a year. How exciting. 
I, I love our country. It's such a great, great, good system. Big, big fan. Uh, so, I mean, generally speaking, though, is the conservative justices against anyone else, right? Yeah. So it was pretty clearly, um, there are three, uh, air quotes, progressive justices on the court now. That's Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. I don't think there's any question of uh, which way they're going to be voting on this. Um, and my read on the argument uh, in terms of the six other justices is that, and I guess speaking to what, and look, I'm reading tea leaves here, but I'm a lawyer, so I'll use I'll use that credential to 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 feel comfortable having an opinion. Um, I don't think they're going to fully overturn Roe, but I think I think we can say with absolute absolute certainty that um, abortion rights are going to change in this country. I don't think there's any question about that. It's just a matter of what it's going to be. And sort of the hallmark of the Roberts court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, of his court is um, that when he can, he, and pardon the expression, looks for opportunities to split the baby. And um, I think here that's going to be on uh, the the amount of time that's a, that a woman has to uh, to seek an abortion. So if I had to guess, I would say they're going to, they're going to strike down the viability uh, standard, and we're going to—they're going to approve Mississippi's 15-week limit, and then we're going to see a cascade of litigation and uh, legislation about moving that line closer and closer and closer until it's an, an effective ban. So, what is the difference then between allowing the 15-week ban that Mississippi currently has or is suing to have? Uh, and overturning Roe entirely. So I think what the court's struggling with in that question is, so if they overturn Roe and uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is the the case 20 years after Roe that basically reaffirmed the holdings in Roe, the the viability standard came from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but the the central right was reaffirmed. Um, You know, if if the court overrules that entirely, it has a problem in terms of articulating its basis for that based on the the doctrine of stare decisis, which is how the Supreme Court um, treats its precedent, right? So the idea is that in order to have a stable court, you have to be able to say, okay, if we decided this way in the past, that's what's going to control our decisions in the future, unless there are really compelling reasons to deviate from that. And there are stare decisis factors like that, that are looked at, I don't, I don't, me, I'm not a constitutional attorney, but I don't think those can be met here. So if they were to overturn Roe, there would be a real crisis of legitimacy in terms of the court. And, and even in the um, the oral argument, uh, Justice Sotomayor out, out of the gate acknowledged that, you know, she said, how, how can, how will the court be able to withstand the stench of this, which is very powerful language. And she's right. She would be right, I suppose, if we lived in a world where people actually cared about that. And this wasn't just, um, you know, I don't care. My team wins. Um, <laughs> so, right. So yeah. I think I think what's going to happen. So the difference here is like, I think the, the basic sort of liberty interest, I hope I'm right, will likely be preserved. Um, and I think what the art, what they're going to say is this idea of viability is, um, maybe like an arbitrary standard doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why not? You know, so that's, what's going to be done away with, because that's how the court gets out of that jam because the majority of the court, I think wants to overrule, but I think there are enough 
not complete crazy people on the court, there are some, that they're going to try to avoid um, completely undermining the entire basis of the constitutional doctrine. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Or we could just... Yeah. Or we're just all in on whatever, whatever's happening now. I, I think it's, it's particularly interesting that you pointed out the crisis of legitimacy, because if there's one thing we know about John Roberts, it's that that man goes to bed every single night worrying that he will go down in history as the worst chief justice of the Supreme Court, which quite likely he will, and deservedly. Um, but he, the reason he constantly looks for opportunities to split the baby is so he can, you know, kind of complicate his legacy. Because uh, I, I first came into his, <clears throat> I first had to read John Roberts because uh, of his decisions on education law, which, because nobody understands education in this country and nobody understands Supreme Court jurisprudence, is like a perfect storm of unintelligibility. And you read John Roberts and this man's education opinions have no bearing on reality. They have no relationship with what is actually happening in any school in the country. But he knew that. He very obviously knew that. And so he decided to try and basically throw the smoke bomb of legalese at you uh, so that you don't understand that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And it, I, I hope that you're right as well, because it, it seems like um, Brett Kavanaugh, who, unlike Neil Gorsuch, is not a friend of the show, because we don't know what his opinions are on truckers freezing to death in their cabins. Um, Brett Kavanaugh was apparently just kind of going like, well, I mean, if you, sometimes the president is wrong. I mean, Brown v. Board of Education overturned precedent, which um, is particularly interesting because if Brett Kavanaugh had been in the court, on the court, pardon me, in 1954, I think we all know which way he would have voted on Brown v. Board of Education. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. He, wasn't well, that a it, unanimous decision? It was, yes. Yeah, he would have been uh, the one vote against. Yeah. Just showing and, and a red-faced dissent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's you, Kate, I think you're, you know, obviously as the, the lawyer in the crowd, so we're not in a room, um, this is virtual. Uh, as the lawyer amongst us, obviously your opinions are weightier than mine. However, I think it is concerning the like level to which um, what's his face and what's her face. I'm very good at this. Uh, Amy Barrett, Coney Barrett, that's one of them. And then one of the other Trump ones, Kavanaugh, I think, were like almost seeming to chomp at the bit and like salivating at the prospect of eliminating abortion as a right in the country. And I think at one point, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I got it, nailed it, uh, said like, oh, no, it's not even really necessary to have abortions anymore because adoptions and safe uh, adoption is so easy and safe haven laws exist in almost all the cities. She said that repeatedly. She brought it up. And so there was the, the Solicitor General, the United States Solicitor General, and then the Council for um, the Appellant both argued. And in both their arguments, she brought it up. And it's like, we, we heard your crazy thing that you said already so she clearly i mean she clearly that that's yes i don't i don't think there's any any disagreement that i would have that more than i would say more than two justices showed uh, that they absolutely would be thrilled to overturn uh you know clarence thomas awoke from his slumber he had some questions some of them 
almost made sense. They weren't good questions. Um, they almost made sense. What were his questions? Get him. Get him. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, well, he, he was really concerned and he came, came back a lot. He's like, you know, we had a case where a mother ingested cocaine before her child was born and she was found to be guilty of child neglect. And what do you say to that? How does that fit in here? Um, and I guess like if you, if, if I took some time to really think about it, there, maybe there was a, a, like a, a through line there that could make sense, but I don't know. I, it's hard for me. Anytime Thomas also, this is very, uh, this is very law nerd, but I was, when I was listening to the argument, Thomas was the first uh, justice to even talk. He was the first one with a question. Um, Surprising. That's, that's wild for Thomas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like he's usually. He really wanted to be part of that national conversation. I think so. Cause I yeah. feel like, I feel like it might not be true. This, this might be hyperbolic, but I feel like there've been like years he's gone without even saying anything. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, no, you're, you're right. I think it was, I want to say almost a decade, but I, I don't think it could have been quite that long. No, I'll have to go to it later. Or something. Working know. on it. Okay. Yay. How long did Clarence Thomas go without speaking from the yeah. bench? Yeah. I mean, that's a, okay. I completely understand now why you think he contributed, but not necessarily in a way that was helpful or useful. Well, and you know, the idea of oral argument is uh, really it's to give justices a chance to ask questions so they can sharpen their thinking, they can resolve issues that they might be wrestling with, they can clarify the arguments before them. A lot of what was happening in this argument, and this is not, I want to say this is not uncommon, um, was just uh, justices taking the opportunity to tell everyone what their opinion is. So another thing that Kavanaugh kept doing he kept doing, he was literally doing the, this is more of a comment than a question from the bench, <laughs> which could you, I'm sorry. I just, I, I really hate the man, but it is very, it's not funny actually, but it is kind of farcical that he continues to prove how unfit he is for that office while having it. Also for the record, Clarence Thomas broke his decade-long silence oh. <laughs> on February 29th, 2016. Yeah, I, oh, I knew a decade sounded about... Okay. Yeah, well, you know what? All right. Yeah, Power good for him. him. He remembered. He, oh, he knew what case he was in. Yeah. He, yeah, he knew what case he was listening to. Kind of. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'm not quite sure, like, and the sexism involved with, like, a cocaine mother in that um, just is uh, astonishing. Well done. There's, yeah, there's a lot to think about in terms of him being like, this This is the, this is my issue. This is what I'm going to come in with on this landmark question of, like, procedural, like, precedent. Like, well, you know, I mean, it's like there's so, like, the issues in this case are enormous. Yeah, but, but okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the mom who did cocaine. I'm being, I'm being dismissive <laughs> of what perhaps might have been a semi relevant point. I don't know, but I was mad when I was listening to it. So I, I give it uh, very little credit. <laughs> Two thumbs down. Two <laughs> thumbs down. <laughs> Thank if you. The more we would also put them down. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I'm not 
I'm not a lawyer uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Me, me trying to remember what things are called from any given moment, let alone like how to construct a logical argument, uh, isn't necessarily something I'm great at. Um, but I think as a lay person who has spent a goodly portion of my adult life um, in activist-ish settings and, and in feminist settings, like this is a, this is an alarming case. And the fact that it got to the Supreme Court and they were like, yeah, we're, we're going to hear this um, is shocking. I don't know if shocking is the right word because we've, we've seen this coming for years. Um, but it, it's very disheartening, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. So it, it's, it is, it is shocking, but it shouldn't be because this is something that's been, it's been in the works since for 50 years, right? Ever since Roe came down, I think that there has been uh, an effort to put this issue before the Supreme Court again with the right, the right case and the right judges. And they, they landed it, right? This is it. Um, I think that this is, they finally figured it out because it's, it's not to say that this issue hasn't, um, abortion has come before the court in a lot of different uh, ways before, um, but not, not, not in the circumstances that, that uh, over, completely overturning Roe would be on the table as it is right now. But as I said, because I must, for myself and for everyone listening, I must, I'm going to hold a little bit of like, this is the worst kind of hope, right? The hope of like the, the least worst option. But I really, it would, I would be very, very surprised if they overturned Roe entirely. They could. They absolutely, if they don't, that's just, they decided not to um, because they, they ran the political calculus and realized that this would not be good for them as an institution. They absolutely could. But I know what happens um, with the Supreme Court when an issue is before it and the question is, is submitted. And then in the six months before the decision is issued, they're all talking to each other right? There are all these letters going back and forth between offices. And the chief justice clearly, um, clearly is going for the just make approve the 15 week uh, limit. And let's be done with it. And he, I think he's going to try to bring his ability, his power to bear on that. And, you know, all our hopes on, on, on Johnny there, I guess, is that hope? I don't know. I don't know. But I think (laughs) hoping John Roberts will save you from something is the word desperation doesn't begin to cover it at that point. Yeah, I remember a time when John Roberts was like the crazy radical on the court. The the only thing John Roberts can save you from is like the actual exercise of democracy. Because let's be clear, John Roberts is was a direct participant. The reason he has the seat that he has is because he was a direct participant in the Bush campaign pulling off a coup d'etat in 2000. That is what he did. All right. So well, I think now is a good point to, to stop. Um, this is first and foremost a show about work. So when we come back, we'll talk about how this can impact people who need to work, which is like all of us. So we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I am still Lou, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. Still hi, y'all. And still Kate. Yes. <laughs> In the affirmative. Very good. Uh, so as I said before the break, uh, we are a show first and foremost about work. And we look at politics through the lens of work, since this is something that we all, or almost all of us, end up doing for a huge chunk of our lives. Um, work is something that affects us all. And there is work implications to lack of abortion access and lack of as of proper healthcare access for um, women. But again, as we said in the first segment, anyone who could become pregnant. We've talked briefly, or we've talked about some of the specific aspects of work that are more impacted for women. Um, but carrying a, a child to term can have a huge impact on your health, uh, life, work, any aspect. And an abortion ban is basically a forced birth and making somebody against their will um, carry a child to term or to whatever end. Um, Because it is worth mentioning that maternal welfare in the U.S. is not good. There are a high number of women who are seriously harmed by pregnancy and childbirth. Um, we do not have a very good success rate as far as birth for the child or mother um, in this country. And it is something that is even worse if you are a person of color. Um, if you are a Black or a Hispanic person carrying a child to term, you are much more likely to die of childbirth or any other complication than somebody who is white or otherwise somebody who lives in a different country altogether. Um, so lack of abortion access and lack of this kind of health care can have a big impact on your physical well-being, mental well-being, economic well-being in a lot of different ways. And so we're, we're just going to talk about why and how a, an abortion ban could really impact work. Just uh, since I've staked out a claim as the, as the data guy on this one, the U.S. maternal mortality rate in 2018 was 17.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. Next on the list among kind of the high-income OECD countries was France at 8.7, which is half. So just to put it in perspective, that that's, that's how bad the U.S. does at protecting the lives of mothers. We're doing great. And USA, and that, USA. Yes, go us. Um, you guys know which state is number one in terms of infant and maternal mortality rates? You want to know? Mississippi. In terms it's of Mississippi. The, it's Mississippi. That answers my question. I was going to ask if number one meant the most or the least. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's Mississippi. And I mean, a lot of people want to talk about the moral argument for abortion. No, we're not even going to go there. Abortion is healthcare and healthcare is a right. And, uh, lack of access to that has huge impacts. Um, I don't think we've ever said it explicitly on this show, but just as a, a starting point for this discussion, um, depending on your socio- socioeconomic level, you will always have access to abortion. Um, if you are a rich person, you will always be able to get an abortion if you need it or want it. Um, if you are not a rich person, then your zip code or your state can drastically determine your 
ability to live your own life. And that's, that's rough. Um, and we haven't even started talking about work yet. But going back to the beginning or to the first segment, when we were talking about Amy Coney Barrett's argument that adoption isn't that big a deal and you can just, you know, leave your baby at a fire station or something and you don't have to worry about it. Um, just being pregnant can lose you your job. Pregnancy discrimination is strictly illegal in the U.S., or at least you're not allowed to do it. I don't know if illegal is the right word, um, but workplaces are not supposed to discriminate against pregnancy. That said, um, there can be up to 50,000 complaints about pregnancy discrimination in a year. Well, I was going to say illegal is the right word. It is illegal. Uh, it is against federal law to discriminate against a person um, in any employment context because they're pregnant. But a lot of stuff is illegal and it still happens, yeah. right? So, and, and particularly in the realm of, uh, of these sorts of, uh, these sorts of uh, protections, uh, the, the onus, right? The weight on, on enforcing, you know, your rights, that falls to the individual. So it kind of doesn't matter if the federal government says, um, you know, they can't, they can't refuse to hire you. They can't fire you because you're pregnant because they're going to do it anyway. And they're just going to bank on you not being able to figure out how to sue them or file an EEOC complaint. And generally they're right. And even if mm -hmm. let's say you, you did it right. You, 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 you got it together. You filed your complaint or whatever. You still lost your job in the meantime, you still have to deal with the realities of that. That doesn't change, right? So we, it's all well and good um, for people to talk about how, oh, this is prohibited by federal law. It's like a lot of awful things happen every day that are prohibited by the law. Right. And it's just the bigger actors, right? Employers, corporations, the, the, the people with the power bank on the fact that individuals aren't going to be able to actually enforce their rights. And they're correct mm -hmm. about that. So we, it's a bit of a fiction when we talk about... Uh, Oh, but, you know, being pregnant is, you know, it's, it's considered a protected class or, you know, they can't discriminate against you. People get discriminated against all the time. Exactly. Uh, so that 50,000 came from a Forbes article from July 2020 called Pregnancy Discrimination in the Workplace Affects Mother and Baby Health, which no kidding. Uh, but part of the article, because it is a Forbes article, so it has to be very pro-business and everything else like that. It oh, puts, this was hilarious. Yeah. It gives some tips and tricks for avoiding workplace discrimination or, or avoiding health risks. It doesn't even give you tips for avoiding the discrimination other than uh, saying to the company, hey, maybe don't have a culture where you would discriminate like that. Just don't do it. Oh, but no, that's, why didn't I that's a good tip though. No, that's no, no. Hold tip. on. That, that tip is not for the employee. That tip is for the manager. That right. that tip is the manager. It says, create a workplace culture where pregnancy discrimination doesn't happen. If only you were, if only there was a person in a position of power that could have avoided doing that in the first place. And if only we had a name for people like that. Right. It it starts with an M, but I can't remember what it might be. Hmm. Could be. Well, hopefully so they read that article though, and they're in a management position. They read it and they're like, oh yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Shouldn't let's stop doing this. That's what <laughs> I've been doing wrong. Ah, uh, mm. 
Anytime a woman, like, at every baby shower, I just went through with pink slips. I mean, maybe that was the wrong thing to do. Uh, okay, so the, the tips for the employee that this Forbes article is laying out. One of them is find out your policy, company's policy on pregnancy discrimination and what your legal rights are. Great. Perfect. You've put it entirely on the employee to make sure that they're being treated properly. Arm yourself with self-care. And do not compromise your physical or mental health for health for your job. Right. Except hopefully you don't need that job uh, to live. Right. Right. So. Exactly. And that's that is part of the problem with women in the workplace and the double standard that exists. On the one hand, especially men, but but a lot of people in in upper management positions. Um, they want to say like, oh yeah, there's no real gender discrimination, gender pay gap, because when you factor in things like time off for childcare or maternity leave or anything else like that, there is no gender pay gap. But things like this, where your suggestion to somebody who's pregnant is, well, you can't take, t- I promise this makes sense in the end. Uh, you can't, you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself and taking care of your health. That's the same kind of thing that when you're being reviewed or, or looked at for a promotion or something, that's the same kind of thing that'll come back at you and say, oh, well, you know, Bob over there that his wife had a kid, but he was here for 80 hours this week. Um, but you who just forced out a human through your lady bits, <laughs> Ryan's going to be very upset when he edits this. Uh, you just pushed out a human through your body. Uh, you, you know, you needed time off for that. So clearly Bob's going to be the one to do this. This is that kind of attitude and be like, oh, yeah, just take time for yourself. If it were possible for women and anybody else to take time for ourselves, we would not be in the position we are where we need to argue about this kind of thing, frankly. Well, and it's entirely the case that women who are around the age where they might have kids are, are seen as liabilities in certain yeah. positions in companies. Cause there, there, there's not a manager or a boss or an HR director who uh, doesn't see a woman taking maternity leave or even a man taking parental leave, like paternity leave as a huge pain. Uh, the idea that it would be, um, Oh, this is great. I'm so glad you're taking time to bond with your baby um, and and to really establish yourself as a fan. That's no, it is it is an imposition on your employer always mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe Rogan, even a few weeks ago, I don't even remember what, went on uh, off on a rant on his show, and I only know this because I saw a YouTube video about it uh, about how men asking for parental leave was completely bizarre and unheard of. And he was ashamed to be part of any culture that would participate in that kind of thing. Um, I think this was part of uh, Biden's parental leave plan or whatever it is, um, which I don't know what the details of that off the top of my head. I'm surprised if it, it, I'd be surprised if it even still exists given how he likes to promise things. Joe Manchin looked at it too closely and it like, set itself on fire (laughs) yeah it fell through right like the parental leave 
I'm going to yes. be honest. I don't remember because every time it's any it. of these good yeah. things. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I assume at this point that anything that gets put into that bill that's not money for the military is basically dead on arrival. So, basically. you know. So, yeah. So then the idea of like even having, and we're jumping a little bit ahead to like the idea of actually right. having a baby and then, and then what yeah. happens once you've had this baby, but there are only eight states in this great nation of ours that actually provide publicly funded parental leave. Um, and it's none of the states that are going to be passing laws restricting abortion. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even it's, Eight out of fifty. It's not many. the The idea that uh, there's any sort of substantive uh, leave out there for people to to deal with the fact that they just had a baby is an absolute fiction. Yeah, we've talked on the show about FMLA and what a crock of poo that is. Because um, just as a reminder for for our listeners, FMLA is the Family Medical Leave Act. It is a federal act that, if you qualify, will protect you for up to twelve weeks from losing your job uh, to either take care of yourself or a loved one through that. So a lot of companies will use FMLA to cover parental leave or maternal leave. Uh, It should be noted that FMLA is unpaid. So you're not working, you're not getting an income. The only thing that you have is the, I'm not even going to say guarantee, but the idea that you're not going to lose your job at the end. And it is only 12 weeks and it's not a guaranteed thing because in order to qualify, you have to have worked for your company for a certain amount of time and a certain amount. Um, your company doesn't need to provide FMLA if they don't have enough employees in the area. Um, so this is not a protection that actually exists for a lot of us. Uh, if you are a part-time worker, you have to work two different part-time jobs in order to put food on the table and pay rent and everything like that, you're almost certainly not going to qualify for FMLA. So if you are forced to have a baby that you don't want, you are not going to be able to get a, keep a job at the end of it, unless somehow you are able to both have a good pregnancy that doesn't have any complications that result in bed rest or other medical necess- necessary leaves, um, or take care of that child after you birth it. Um, and whatever else that might entail. And hopefully you have a healthy child that can go into daycare, which by the way, you're also not going to be able to afford because that price is astronomical. So this abortion ban, in the end, these kind of restrictions to abortion access, they can only be seen as an attempt to force women out of the workforce and into very specific and narrow gender roles within society, which is to stay at home, take care of the children, cook and clean. And if you ever in your life want to experience anything other than that, then this should be concerning to you. Yeah, I think it's impossible to see this as anything other than um, punishment for women desiring to have any amount of freedom outside of Mm -hmm. Uh, a, a traditional marriage, right? right? Yeah. If if you're a single mom, this is going to be not good for you because if you want to have kids, that's okay. And it, it's very important that we're not anti-kid here. 
<laughs> I have kids. Uh, I have kids, so we're covered. Yes. Yeah, we're covered. Okay, cool. Uh, I like. I've thought about having kids. I can't afford it. You know, it's it's not something that is is really within the realm of of something I can afford, given how healthcare is, given how childcare is in this country. It's it's ridiculous the amount of extra steps that have to be taken in order to make that a, a, a thing that I could do. Because I am not staying at home with any kids I have. I will not. I like to work. Um, I acknowledge the fact that work is terrible. And we've talked about that at length on this show. Um, but I also don't want to stay home with my kids. No, not at all. Um, so this, what it is, it's limiting the options that people have. And limiting their ability to choose for themselves the direction that they want to do. And it's limiting your ability for your children to choose what they want to do. Another thing that I've been thinking about, um, you know, with this idea of, um, you know, forced birth um, and and a, a whole sort of, I don't, I mean, you know, one in four women, uh, right? That's the that's the statistic. One in four women who had an abortion, and so thinking about how many women then are going to be facing a pregnancy they don't want, in the context of a country that refuses to provide healthcare for its citizens, so. Um, there's going to be a lot of women who can't access prenatal care that they might need. Um, there are going to be people who get their, their health care through their employer. Uh, they may lose their job because they're pregnant, as we were just discussing. Um, and then also in the context of avoiding pregnancy, um, you know, the, the Burwell v. Hobby Lobby decision, the Supreme Court uh, gave, gifted us a few years ago, popped into my mind. Um, so they kind of, they get you coming and going, right? So employers can refuse to cover contraceptives, um, as part of their health insurance package if it is offensive to their, um, religious beliefs. Um, but the state can still, what, force you to remain pregnant if that's what happens. So I don't know. Um, this is sort of thing where if I think, if I think about it too much, all of the things sort of collapse in on themselves and I get very upset. Uh, but it leads right to that the same place, Lou, that you were just talking about, which is um, what is being communicated to us is that women, we, women, that's, um, I am one of those, um, the, we hate you. We don't want you to be able to make choices about yourself. Um, for far too long, you've stepped out of line, and now we're going to put you back. And I think that's, that the idea of putting us back and we have stepped out of line, I think that's part of what's fueling so much of this push towards abortion restriction and lack of abortion access is that we have gotten too big, which for better or worse, like there's still a gender pay gap. There's still um, unequal share of household work is falls on women and, and social reproduction is still primarily something that women do. Um, so I would say we, we've never even reached the point of equality in this area. Yet, we've, we've reached too far for some. We've gone too far and, and asked for too much. The, the idea behind the Obama administration and the idea behind certain politicians' theory of change is that if change is slow and incremental, then it's harder to roll back because each new thing 
has time to percolate through the culture and become ingrained and become cultural and, and therefore expected and assumed. And the thing is, the right wing in this country has always understood that that is not true at all and that you can make huge changes whenever you want as long as you have the support of you know certain powerful factors, which the left does not. Uh, and if you're listening and you think that the left does, you're wrong because it, it, you know, the Supreme Court is not currently trying to like overturn corporate personhood. It's not currently trying to force people to pay taxes fairly. It's currently trying to overturn the right to an abortion. And if it does that, it may well be marriage equality in the firing line next, or it may be the, you know, as we talked about last time, Lawrence v. Texas, it may well be that the court next wants to take aim at what consenting adults do in bedrooms, regardless of their gender identity. Because again, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett are not the type of people who stop it at, at any line. They are not. I can tell you this, having met people like that for the past decade, regularly interacting with them, those people are only too happy to watch those of us who are in any way different from kind of the 1950s uh, white picket fence, supposed leave-it-to-beaver existence. They want us all to pay. They want us all punished. That is what they want. Not, not some version of kind of uh, equality or tolerance or anything. No, they want to have the state as their arm of vengeance. And they're going to get it, or so it seems. So the question really becomes what are the rest of us going to do about it? Because obviously we can't rely on the Democratic Party. They could have fixed this problem. They could have fixed it multiple times over. They've had a trifecta multiple times over in the past 12 years and failed to do anything about it, knowing that this was, pardon the pun, on the docket. They have abdicated their responsibility and actively done so. Multiple Democratic leaders Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, have abdicated the responsibility to run a caucus that argues in favor of reproductive freedom, of reproductive rights, of abortion care. They have also punted on things like ensuring that health care is afforded to every citizen in this country. They are punting right now on family leave. They, the only thing they can point to in this regard is like one expansion of, uh, of the Children's Health Insurance Program and the child tax credit under Joe Biden. That's it. So at some point, it's going to kind of fall on the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a good place to, to leave that for now. When we, so when we come back, we'll be talking about what this all could lead to and, and where this could all be going. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I am still Lou, or once again Lou, I guess this time. Uh, once again, joined by Noah. Courts. <laughs> once again, joined by Kate. Hi. <laughs> uh, Noah, have they all rhymed with orts? 
in the past. I think it's the past three episodes you're on a streak. I've only done this with sports and ports, so I, so, I think so. I think you're on a streak. Uh, congratulations. Anyway, no um, we're definitely keeping track of these things. Uh, right. We're talking about Dobbs v. Jackson, abortion access, and work. Um, in this segment, we're going to look at what could happen. So let's say that this case goes the bad way and overturns Roe, or this case case goes the not quite as bad way and institutes the 15 week abortion ban. Um, what, what, what could happen? What's up with that? What up with that? Nothing, nothing good. I'll tell you that we can, we can say that straight out. So if we, if we're lucky enough to get the lesser of two evil here, two evils here, um, and it's, and it's just the 15 week deal, um, we can absolutely expect to see states um, moving that timeline earlier and earlier and earlier until it's functionally a ban. Um, and there would the, and there would be absolutely no way to stop that because the problem with moving from the viability standard to the 15-week uh, line um, is that the viability standard was predicated on 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 something, right? There there was a, a an idea there. This is why this makes sense. 15 weeks is just a number. Well, and if it's 15, what's the difference between 15 and 10? And what's the difference between 10 and 6? Um, and that is absolutely how that would go. Yeah, it's interesting that they were arguing about the the viability standard being somewhat arbitrary, but it, it's the least arbitrary of all of the other options, I would say. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that That's precisely what's going to happen, almost regardless of what else happens. Like, I don't think there's any way that they're going to not rule in favor of Mississippi. Yeah. In, in some capacity. And that's, I mean, you know, when a, when a, an appellant or when a, when a litigant advances like a pretty controversial uh, argument as Mississippi has done here, they always give an in the alternative argument, um, which they did here knowing that they're going to get one of them. Uh, so I think, and, and based on listening to how, how particularly Chief Justice Robert, Roberts was coming at this, I think that's going to be where the court lands, as I said earlier. But, um, you know, but what if they don't, right? What if um, insanity wins the day and they completely overturn Roe and Casey? What does that mean for us? Um, beyond the idea then that obviously abortion would be banned um, in states that uh, chose to do so, right? Because then it would basically become a state's right issue, state's rights issue, um, which would immediately impact a lot of people. But what does that say about the, the state of the courts and the state of the law in this country? Because there are implications beyond abortion. So even for people who may think, yeah, I don't, that, would, that wouldn't be cool, but maybe it wouldn't affect me. Well, think again. Because this is not, and this is a smart, a smart move on, on behalf of the, the people who are advancing this argument, because it's not just about abortion, right? It's about control. It's about power. It's about consolidating that. Um, so really what would happen is, because uh, it's, it's what's called an, an originalist argument. If it's not in, if it's not in the, the physical document of the Constitution, it doesn't exist as a right. And there's a lot of things that aren't that people rely on. And those would all be up for grabs. And I think that's worth at least contemplating um, if you didn't feel like going, sleeping, right? If, if you were looking to, to stay up really late and worry about the world, well, here, here's a great opportunity to do that. 
yeah, there's as exactly as you put it, Kate, there's not just abortion at issue and it's not just a, a, a person's ability to exist in society of their own free will. Um, there's a lot of different aspects that could be up for grabs, just as Noah said in the last segment. Um, what happens in your bedroom between consenting adults? Like that could be up for grabs as far as, as being litigated away. Uh, and I think Kate, at one point you also started when we were prepping for this episode, you started talking about the, and, and Noah, you too, about the court litigating and, and making this as part, part of their legitimacy. Not litigating, legislating. Legislating. If sorry. the if the court is if the court is willing to do this, if the court and, and again it won't be the whole court, but it doesn't matter because in the end, dissents and so on aside, you know, it's not like this isn't a percentage decision. If a third of the court dissents, it's not like it only happens sixty percent of the way. You know, that could be interesting because I think some justices have a very weird grasp on math, but sure. If the court is going to go down the Kavanaugh road of just like, let's just overturn precedent if we think it's wrong, or the Coney Barrett road of, we're going to regard certain cases, the ones in which you can call me a racist if I disagree with them, as super precedent, but all the other ones that align with my political values don't have that protection. Um, and to be clear, I should, I'm not a lawyer, as anybody who is listening to Punching Out for longer than five minutes knows, I'm a teacher. Um, but I have actually had Latest to read Supreme ever. Court jurisprudence multiple times and actually try and make sense of it, which is difficult. If we're if you're going to go that route, the court is legislating from the bench. And I know that that doesn't matter to anybody listening because you are perfectly OK. And yes, I am talking to you listening right now. You are OK with the court doing this when it agrees with you. And the problem is, as one of our other legal eagles has said before, Greg, that part of the problem is that these issues go to the court in the first place instead of being dealt with in the legislature. So instead, what we have here is a nine-member legislature. This is no different from the Senate or the House making law. And there are nine of them because, as we said on the show before, well, they're ring wraiths, basically. Robe wraiths, if you will. Which makes Roberts the Witch King of Angmar, so I think we all know what needs to happen there. But having said that, if you are if if we are going to accept that they are legislators, unelected legislators, then they have to be treated like legislators. And I don't know about you, we don't tend to like senators or congress people. We don't tend to like politicians in this country. But SCOTUS and its justices have gotten away with pretending that they're above it all. Even as number one, they clearly become less interested in even pretending that they are. And number two, again, we elect people like, or sorry, we appoint people as a country like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to that court. The judicial profession is not sending their best at this point to the Supreme Court. So if they're going to actually do what Roberts promised expressly he would not do, if they're going to start making law from the bench, then they need to be treated as a legislature, a legislature that is illegitimate because it is not elected. It is appointed by the one of the smallest clubs in any developed country, in any democratic country, period. And 72 point air quotes around democratic as well. Yeah. 
I, I'd like to say, you know, typically in this segment, we try to be positive, but you know, there's not a lot of positive, uh, either in come June, either you are going to exist in a world in which if you are one of the 22 states that have trigger laws on the books that will be enacted, um, once this, this is decided, uh, you're going to have to either travel a lot farther to get a legal abortion, or you're going to have to resort to other methods, um, almost all of which are going to be very dangerous. Or we're going to exist in a world in which we're Poland and abortion is completely illegal across the country. Um, I don't think that's going to quite be the case here because I think Nevada especially, um, it is part of their state constitution to allow abortion. But There, there are a few states um, that have... Um, you know, safeguarded it in their in their own constitutions. But um, really, what we're looking at is just absolute chaos. Yeah. Um, to 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 live in a country where your rights can vary so dramatically just based on what state you happen to live in, like that's crazy. Um, and I think no matter what, that's going to happen to some degree. Um, and I think it's a reality we all need to sort of be preparing ourselves for. And I don't like, I don't, I'm not, I don't tend to sort of, I'm not a, is it what chicken little? I'm not, I'm not one of those. Right. I mean, I, I try to like have like the appropriate amount of anxiety for things, even though I have a lot of it, but you know, I'm good at regulating um, that when it comes to these sorts of things. But I think like um, this is, we're at like a really alarming point. Uh, for, for reproductive rights in this country. And when you look back, uh, it's, it's not hard to see how we got here, but it still feels kind of incomprehensible uh, that we've arrived at this moment anyway. This would be a good point at which we could tell folks what to do, but the FCC would frown upon that. Um, the, the point is, you know, I think if you're interested in something that, or, or things that could help, I think there's routes that people can take right now to help support others. Um, and I, you know, reach out to us at any point and, you know, we'll talk to you about it because people are going to need help. And a lot of our comrades and, and neighbors or, and maybe even you guys, you might need help. And I, if nothing else in this face of a lot of bad things that can be happening, uh, we got to help each other. Now, like always is a time for solidarity. Yeah. I think that's a good place to call it for today. Sorry for the downer. <laughs> we'll have to record something cheery soon. Uh, but I'm Lou. I'm Kate. And I was Noah. And this has been Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.